Welcome back to Hand on the Line Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Boggs, and this is episode eight. So for starters, I just want to thank everyone. I broke a thousand listens um, just yesterday on my Apple or the iTunes app or whatever. YouTube's lagging a little bit. Maybe my wife was right about the vulgar crotch shot, but it's, it's gone, you know. Give me some likes and subscribe on YouTube. Appreciate the support, though, guys. I think it's mostly my friends listening anyway, so I really appreciate you guys. These last, uh, last week, I've uh, done some Zoom meetings with a couple teams, two teams to be exact, and I'm doing one more tomorrow. I did one with Rob Ortiz. I feel comfortable saying that because he posted it. The other coach, I'm, I won't say anything because he didn't post it. I don't know if there was like a violation or something like that. But anyways, it feels good to be back in the old line room. So I have had coaches reaching out to me saying, you know, can we talk? Can we do a Zoom meeting? You talk to our old line. And I'm like, hell yeah, it's awesome. It feels good just to kind of be back in that culture. I've been in this O-line purgatory for like three years, but I'm out now, and it just felt good to be in those rooms. They're all similar. You know, there's differences in culture, but you always, for the most part, in college football, it's diverse. You got the serious guys. You got the sarcastic guys. You got the slab dick, all that. It's awesome. That's what makes uh, the O-line room great. It shows you what the world could possibly be, right? It shows you how cool it could really be. So, The O-line room, especially in college and the NFL, it's not like what we see on the news. It it just shows you the possibilities. Anyways, because of that, the way I was just kind of doing those meetings is people were just firing off questions to me. And uh, so I was like, well, I'll talk about some of those questions because I've gotten some uh, messages in my DMs that were similar. So I'll just go through them. And... And the last two uh, meetings I did with the line, I feel like the first question was, you know, I tell them about myself. I sucked in high school. I didn't make my college team. I got cut from three leagues in one year, and then I made the fifty-three for five years. So they want to know, like, hey man, basically this thing is hard. How did you get through it, knowing it's hard? Like you want to give up and stuff like that. What makes you not want to give up? So I'll talk about that, since it seemed to be a common theme. And I got a DM about it from a kid that plays at some D2 school in the Midwest. So probably have a similar story. Maybe we have a similar outcome. Hopefully has a better outcome than me in this O-line thing. So anyways, for me, when things get hard, what was important for me was knowing my why. Uh, and we hear this, it's such a cliche. You have to know your why. And there's some, there's some merit to that. But I think it gets overblown. If you have a 14-year-old kid, you've got to know your why. Really? How about your why is I enjoy hanging out and playing football with my friends? Same for a 17-year-old. Maybe the same for a sophomore in high school. Um, basically, I think the why is important when shit starts getting hard, right? When you start getting hit in the mouth. If you're just having fun and you're, you're having success in the game, the reflection on that, maybe you don't need it. Maybe you don't need it right now. Maybe you don't need to worry about your why. Just enjoy it. It's a fun freaking game. It's hard. But it's fun, too. So for me, and when we talked to uh, Dr. Dickhead or Dr. Looney last week, you know, he talked about our when we go through traumas or experiences, it's not how we learn from the moment. We learn from reflecting on them. And our reflection is really got guided within context of our personal experiences. So everyone's going to reflect on things differently. So for me, when I was, like, in high school, my why just came organically. So I had a why at 17. I don't think it's necessary because, you know, like 
I remember at my old job, they would ask the players, like, what's your why? Some guys had why, some guys didn't. Some guys had, like, the basic stuff. I just want to make a lot of money. I want to buy my mom a house. Um, guys like, I want to be the man. I want to go to the Hall of Fame. All these things, right? Um, I think that's great. But I, when I really looked at it, I have, like, some criteria for what a why should be. And this is for when things are getting hard, when you're having these questions. Maybe you're getting your ass beat. Maybe um, the, the terrain of your, you know, you, you go to a school and now you're in humidity. Maybe that's kicking your ass. You know, it's hard for you. Or maybe the learning the playbook is hard for you or physically it's hard for you. Or you're just getting your ass kicked by the guy across from you. And you start having these conversations with yourself like, hey, am I good enough? Hey, uh, am, do I really want to do this? Is this really what I want to be doing? That's when it's important to have a why, when your ego starts to come into play. I'm not talking about that ego like the ego of, the projection, the cocky guy, that's what we always talk about ego. That's that's bullshit. That's just projections. Your ego is just that voice that's telling you what you are right at this moment. So it could be telling you, like, hey, man, you're great. But it could also tell you, hey, man, you fucking suck. You're not good enough. You're not good enough to be out here. You know, that's, that's the reality of the ego, too. It just tells you what you're going through right now. And it could be tyrannical, meaning, like, it just takes over. That's when you see anxiety. You see depression. You see guys, you know underachieving because that voice in their head that ego is telling them that you're not good enough right so that's when i think a why having a why is important not just because you play football you have to have a why it's like I, I played football since i was seven so basically the first 10 years of my football life was like it was freaking fun it gave me uh it gave me a sense of purpose right it it um, gave me a sense of identity, which, you know, you struggle with later on when you just can only identify as a football player. But that's what it did for me. So for me, it was just fun. I was hanging out with my friends. I got to be physical, and that's that. But as I got, as the stakes got higher in my mind, I you know, I think of why holds some merit. So when I look at, like, the criteria for what your why should be, and, like, this sounds so corny talking about this, but your why, your reason for doing it is bigger than you. It's bigger than football. We hear all these things. So for me, the criteria would be is can it transcend uh, achievement and success? Can it transcend time? And can it transcend getting hit in the fucking mouth? Because that's, that's when the ego turns on. That's when the ego turns on you. It's when you get hit in the mouth. That's when you start questioning things. You question your existence. You question you're good enough. It's when you get hit in the mouth. When things are going good, it's fun, right? It's when you get hit in the mouth. And I, like I said, you know, it, maybe it could be the weather. Maybe it could be this hard-ass coach. Maybe it could just be this hard-ass playbook. Or worst of all, that freaking three-tech lined up across from you hitting you in the mouth. That's the worst one. You know, it's like Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. That's, that's freaking true because that plan goes out the window. So that's when, when you're having that conversation with yourself, that's when I'm like, okay, it's important to have a why. And like I said, it transcends time, it transcends uh, achievement and success, and it transcends getting hit in the mouth. Mine's simple. I think I've discussed this. My high school coach, Tim Salter, he said, you're not going to play college football. Uh, I'm not going to make any tapes for you. They've, all the coaches have seen your tapes. Uh, he was not going to allow me to make my own tapes. All the colleges have seen our tapes because they had seen them for our um, – he sent them for our, um, you know, our quarterback and our wide receiver. And I'm like, well, I want them 
I wanted to send him mine and I want to explain my story. He goes, that's not what they care. They just want to see what's on film. So that, that's kind of what I learned early on is like I could show you better than I could tell you. Well, I wanted to tell them like, hey, you know, I wasn't even on varsity as a junior, but now I'm a var- I am made varsity a senior. I was second team all league. And when the season ended, I was in those weight. I was in the weight room. I was in those streets. I was getting ready for the to let my dreams come to fruition. I wanted to explain that, right? But my coach was like, "They don't care." I'm like, "Man, I gained 15 pounds. Solid muscle. I don't know if that's true. I know I gained 15 pounds, but uh, I want to tell them because it doesn't matter. All they care about is the film. You know, it's not happening. That's how my head coach explained it to me. He said, "You know, go to um, go to a JC. You won't play." In Southern California, we had a good JC uh, JUCO system, except for these cocksuckers at RCC, Mustafa. You know who you are, hitting kids. I know. Uh, anyways, so he was like, you're not going to play there. He was like, maybe you get some film. He was like, every now and then you hear about a third stringer getting some film. So right off the bat, he wrote me off, right? He's hating on me. He's hating on me. That's what everyone would say. And then um, he said, you could go there for two years, maybe three years. And then transferred away D3. And he was like, you'll probably get some playing time there, but you'll save your parents a lot of money. He's like, that's that's your, you know, that's your ceiling, essentially. After I broke down, I went home, I cried. I remember laying on my bed. And then uh, my grandpa called and was like, hey, where are you at? You want to work out? Um, because of that experience, I developed a why at a young age. And I was like, you know what? This, I'm not unique. Kids have told us all the time. In fact, my center that I played next to in high school was told that same thing. He told us both. He said, he told our center, he goes, there's some small schools that would want you. He was like, I'll call some small schools. My friend was dirt poor. He was not about to go to a D3 school, right? It was impossible. And um, so to this point, I'll give him his praise. He went to RCC. Before those cocksuckers showed up that hit kids, balled out, went to Idaho State, and he was an all-conference center at the worst team in the conference. That's how good he was. I don't think they had any conference wins in the big sky, and he still got all-conference. Despite his coach telling him, you know, your, your ceiling is D3. Like, you would be a starter in D3. I would be a backup in D3. That's how he saw it. That was his truth, and he was sticking to it. Well, because of that, when I was at home and had my meltdown and then my grandpa, my psycho grandpa called me and said, hey, we got to go to the gym. Or he would call me to C-Word, see you in, you got it. And um, he basically was like, when that happened, I was like, you know what? I'm not the only one that hears this, right? Kids are hearing this all the time. They're always going to hear it. So that was my why. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to the college. I'm going to go to the NFL. And when kids have to, when kids are doubted in their careers by other players or their friends or their family or coaches, when they get told they're not going to make it and they start feeling crazy and their ego starts turning on and telling them, well, maybe you're right. You're not good enough. I think this coach is right. When they hear that, I wanted to be the reason they didn't feel crazy. And that was my why. I don't know if I did it, but at least I know that when I got hit in the mouth, I could fall back on that. Say, because I knew that this will uphold time. Kids will get told they're not good enough by their parents, by their friends, by their teammates, by their coaches. Um, does it uphold achievement? Yeah. If I may, if I keep achieving stuff, it doesn't matter. People, kids will still get told that. The kids that my why, me motivating them. And then, obviously, like I said, hit in the mouth. Um, so 
that was my why. That was that was what was important to me. And let me break it down. So when I say like it has to be why that criteria matters. But let's say your why is to prove people wrong. And we hear this all the time. And we hear the juxtaposed position. You shouldn't want to prove people wrong. Don't focus on the negative. Focus on proving the people that care about you right. Prove those guys right. I think neither one of them really hold uh, water under those criteria. Because think about this. I was told I'm not going to play college football. Okay? The minute... I started my first game in college, which was versus Sacramento State. They were D1 AA, and we were barely D2 because we were still getting mollywopped by NAI and D3 schools at Humboldt State. The minute I started there, that game, week one, 2008, I proved my head coach wrong. And I'll tell you what, the first series, I got push-pulled so hard it was embarrassing. I landed flat on my face. And right there was the conversation I could have had with myself. You know what? I already proved them wrong. I'm a college football player. I could tap out or, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to uh, keep my goals so, make my goals so important. You know what I mean? This is not worth it. I already proved this guy wrong. He was my why. Well, right there, that's the conversation. That's why. It doesn't, that didn't withstand getting hit in the mouth. And plus, it didn't withstand time because at the, the minute I started a game, I proved them wrong. Right? So, when I'm lucky, that wasn't my why. I didn't care. I didn't care about that part. I cared about the next generation. The same thing, like uh, guys that are like, oh, I, I want to be rich. Okay, I think that's great. I don't think there's anything wrong with being rich. Um, and you get hit in the mouth. And you go, oh, you know what? I've made some good contacts in my life. You know what I mean? I've the alumni, I'm sure, won't let me fail. I could start doing some internships, and it's less demanding on my body. Those are the kind of conversations you can have. And these are conversations I think regular people have when they get hit in the mouth, right? But when you have a why that kind of transcends that, I think you're in a better position to fight through the hard part of football. And then we know there's people that really don't struggle, right? I mean, at least on the surface, they're just better athletes. They're having fun. They love the game. And that's perfectly fine too, right? But if you're having that conversation, if you're already worried about, oh, it's hard, or you're going to a JUCO, you're out of state, the program sucks, it's less organized than your high school, um, when you're going through that kind of stuff, you got to have a why that it kind of grounds you and just says, you know, allows you to be in that moment and, um, you know, get to the next place. Like, I'll give you an example because I've mentioned these RCC guys. So, my, I, I call him my protege, but he's like my stepbrother, um, Bryce Peterson. He's a center for Akron. So he goes to, um, he's my strength coach from Humboldt State, son. So I'm, I was stuck with him regardless, right? He came out, he's, whole life, I've, uh, I've been a part of his whole football career. Same with Big Duke. We've been a part of his whole football career. He goes to, or he gets a scholarship offer to Iowa State. Something happens. He ends up committing to Nevada. Nevada gets a new coaching staff when Pullian gets fired. And he's, like, a little weary. Like, do I, t- do I stick with him? These people didn't recruit me. Um, he ends up deciding to go back into, I don't know what they call it, but he said, I'm going to put it on social media. That's what they all do. He said, I'm, I'm going to open up my recruiting process again. Gets no offers, right? He thought maybe Fresno State was going to offer him. Turned out Fresno State just wanted huge people. 
and they did a good job. They had a good good old line, and they kind of offered him a walk on. And apparently, the coach laughed at him when he said, I, I, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna go somewhere and earn a scholarship." And the coach kind of laughed at him. And um, so he goes, he's gonna go to uh, Saddleback Community College, where Kyle Long went. It's in a nice neighborhood. And lo and behold, there's this former All Pro that I really looked up to that's going to be coaching at RCC. And I gave him the advice. I was like, man, go there. You're going to be work with all pro. So he goes there, and it's a terrible experience. Uh, he had a video go viral. Uh, a coach hit him. This just coward. Just hits him from behind because he messed up a slide pro. He just gets beat to shit this year, like mentally, physically, emotionally. But I can only sit here and imagine that he had a why, and I know for a fact his parents just raised him right. You know what I mean? He was just so mentally resilient. He came out of there over in a, in a course of a season. He lost 50 pounds throughout the course of the season. He went into game one as a third stringer and ended up starting every game after that and lost 50 pounds. He got physically abused. He made a, a video went viral. No one got fired because everyone there's pussies. That's another story. But – the guy was just so mentally resilient. I can only imagine that he always had a why. You know what I mean? I know, and I don't want to put his why on blast, but he always had a why. And I, I get emotional just fucking talking about this, the fact that he made it out of there, the fact that I, was, I had something to do with him going to that place. It pissed me off that I did that. And I was hard on him about, like, his when he was, you know, teetering about how hard it was. I didn't know what he was going through. But he always had a why. And then he goes to Akron. He's been starting at Akron ever since. He's, he's the super senior because, you know, the COVID year didn't count. So, I mean, the guy never had a red shirt and just kind of defied Oz because when shit got hard, and I, I don't imagine anyone having it much harder than he did at RCC, um, when shit got hard, he just kind of fell back on his why. He always stayed going. And and now, like, he's a starting Division One football player, and he's a He's a pleasure to watch because he's a dickhead, super physical. So that's the important. When, when things get so rough, that's when that conversation of having a why is important. You know, but um, not to overplay it. So, so seriously, like you're 14, 15, 16, 17, I don't care, 20, and you're having fun. <laughs> like don't, don't think like, hey, I have, don't, don't give yourself anxiety over this crap. Anyways, so that's how I always dealt with, when things got hard, because, I mean, yeah, everyone's got their stories. Everyone's got their trials and tribulations. There's not anyone that went through this thing easily, whether it be injuries, family problems, school problems. Everyone's got their thing. So, like, I'd say my hardest year was, like, I got cut from, well, I guess four teams in one year and three different leagues, and each league was, like, lower and lower before I got to come back and make the 53 five times. So, that was just because I said, you know, F this. It's not about you because it's about all these other kids that have been told they can't do it. And it worked for me. It's anecdotal, right? So, but, I mean, everyone talks about know your why, right? So that's that. Next question. This was a broad question. It was from a strength coach. Um, and kind of the O-line coaches I did these things with, they asked that, but this is a more pertaining to high school. They asked something along the line. So what are the problems you see with high school athletes? And he's talking physically. He's a strength coach. So it's not 
far from far off from the general population, right? Um, or any athletes for that matter. If you start from the ground up, yeah, most the alignment have limited range in their ankles. We're talking high school. And just to show, like, I haven't worked with a ton of high school guys. At my old job at OLP, we had high school camps. Those are short-lived, right? So I'm not I'm not seeing uh, adaptation in a weekend camp, right? And then we had we had a little more time with kids when um, uh, the boss's sons worked there and all their high, or worked out there and their high school teammates worked out there. So I had a little more hands on there. But the last two years, I've worked with a small group of high school alignment, training them at Shabooms. That's my gym, and uh, at the park down the street, that's Shabooms West. So I don't have a huge population, but yeah, it's it's safe to say like there were some common traits that you noticed that common opportunities, right, um, for the kids to work on. You start off ankles, and this is all levels, right? Got stiff ankles. I think in high school you have a difference is that it might not be the joint capsule itself. Sometimes it's actually like the tissue around it, the caps. You think of like you hit puberty, you hit growth spurts. Your bones grow faster than the muscles have a chance to adapt, so the muscles are super tight, right? So for the high school kids, you, you stretching the calves out or putting them in uh, exercises that put that ankle in flexion, whether they're hips in extension or not, that seems to do wonders, right? Really stre- stre- um, stressing those tissues. With the NFL, I don't know, the guys sprain their ankles 15 times, between high school and the NFL, normally that joint's not moving, right? So high school, a lot of it's more tissue. Hips, tight hips, this is this is just goes on with the general population. They spend a lot of time sitting there in class. They were in virtual school the last year and a half, uh, depending on what state. The guys I were in, they spent a year in virtual school because we're in Arizona, we opened up. Um, so tight hips and specifically no hip extension, right? And I see the same thing with the NFL guys. Um, Kelly Starrett, who's probably like the therapist that he made everything so digestible for me uh, early on over the last, I don't know, I've been following him for 10 10 or 11 years. Um, He made everything digestible for me. He put up a video last year. He was just talking about um, a powerlifter woman. She was a beast. She had knee pain. And she did all his mobility tricks and voodoo bands and rolled the quads and stuff like that. And her knee pain wouldn't go away. She had tendonitis. I think he said it was tendinosis. Um, so they, he was like, let me see your programming. Well, she did squats, she did deadlifts, and she did bench. He said she's so tight because she's not doing things in, uh, with her hip and extension. So like a lunge. Hip and extension is the back leg in a lunge, right? So he just gave her like some iso holds with the – Weighted ISO holds, so we put her hip in extension and said, at the end of your workout, do a couple sets of, of Bulgarian split squats. And I thought that was brilliant because it was so simple. What you have to understand is, as humans, we just kind of take shape to the things we put our body through. So if you sit at a desk all day, you kind of take form of a chair. Your hip flexors get tight, you know what I mean? You, it's When they stand up out of a chair, when you stand up out of a chair all day, it's harder to stand up straight. Your posture gets screwed up. Even like me, this last 15 months I've been in school, uh, virtual, I feel a little more hunched over than I did the previous 15 months because well, I'm kind of hunched over looking at my laptop all the time. So we take shape to what we do. So 
to me, like, when, when you see, like, the, you know, what are the problems I've seen, a lot of them can, with high school athletes, like, not overthinking it, a lot of them are cured with a good strength and conditioning program, right? Okay. You got tight calves. Okay. We could address that. You got tight hips. You're missing hip extension. Okay. Well, are they sprinting? You know what I mean? You're, if you're getting max velocity sprints, you're getting your hip into hip extension. Oh, well, some places they just do prowler sprints or, or acceleration for the O-line. Maybe they're not getting that full hip extension, right? Well, okay. We'll throw some Bulgarian split squats in like Kelly Starr did so they're not just squatting. So if you have, like, these movements that challenge different archetypes, it covers up a lot of those, you know, or, or at least balances out a lot of the things that uh, fight against it. You know, talking like the tight hip. And then the other thing you see a little more than I used to is the, the, the upper back is more rounded than, than it used to be. And I think, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I, I would say holding a device has something to do with it, rounding shoulders, having rounded shoulders, rounded back. I, but I'm not convinced that that is a performance inhibitor anymore. I used to say a, a rounded back, is it's taking away from their game. You can't be as strong. You can't be as explosive with the rounded upper back. I'm talking about the upper back, the T-spine. And, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sold on it anymore like I was. So when you, in, in athletics, like most of the people with rounded backs, rounded shoulders you see are fighters, right? Because, like I said, we adapt to what we do. Fighters have to cover their face, and they use their shoulders to protect their face. Like, think of Conor McGregor. He's um, got a six-pack, right? But he's not aesthetically pleasing like a bodybuilder, right? Because he's all rounded. Well, that, that's him adapting to his sport. Or think of Nate Diaz, or think of uh, um, Floyd Mayweather. They, they're rounded. Well, because that's how they fight. That's the posture they, they fight in. And when I look at a line play, I see a lot of centers that had a lot of success that played that way. And then you go, well, imagine how much better they could have been without that rounded upper back. I go, hold on, hold on, because I have corrected tons of NFL centers and said, hey, get, get some extension in your upper back and make the stance look good. So I have this archetype of a perfect stance. And I go, oh, wow, that's it right there. And you tell them to take a freaking set, and it never looks as good as it did. Do they need more time doing that out of that, you know, do they just need to take more time doing that with their upper back into extension? I mean, I don't think mess with it. And anecdotally, I'm going to use that word a lot, damn it. So I, I used to force my back to do that, right? My last year, which was like arguably my best training camp, I, didn't, I stopped doing anything. I just said, I'm throwing everything out, and I'm going balls to the wall. And, I mean, I move better. I can't deny that. When I think of uh, guys that kind of had the, uh, they would have their back nicely into extension where it wasn't rounded, no turtle on their upper back. You could imagine that. I remember a guy I used to work with, C.J. Davis. He had that. Well, the guy, when you look at C.J. Davis, he had, like, the worst spinal lordosis ever. And that's what they say, like, like the meme, you're not really a bad bitch, you just got spinal lordosis. That was him. So when he sat in his stance, he it looked perfect, right? And we know, like, okay, he had huge anterior pelvic tilt or huge spine, lumbar extension. 
We never say that that's ideal. Like, I remember at my old job, we made a video about why that's not ideal. Because uh, it was the gorilla back or banana back or whatever. I talked about that in a previous episode. So, and then, like, even um, A.Q. Shipley. Similar build to CJ, just less, like, overextended lower back. But he was perfectly, like, proportioned. 50% legs, 50% uh, upper body. Me, I'm, like, 69% legs. And then uh, hit the hit the mic. And then I'm like 31% uh, upper body. But so AQ, he had that nice little extended spine. And he was he's a hell of a player. He played for 12 years or whatever. But uh, like Roberto Garza, rounded back. Nick Mangold, rounded back. Uh, Olin Krutz, rounded back. So I'm not, I'm not convinced like, hey, do I need to correct this? And for one, in skill acquisition. I don't, I don't mess with it too much anymore. I don't worry about it too much anymore. I don't, it's not it's not on a priority at, by any means until I really see that athlete move like from a system standpoint. I got to see everything before I even think about addressing that. And then in the weight room, like, of course, like, okay, you're going to do some pulls. You're going to do, uh, you're going to do these lifts anyways. You're going to do rows. You're going to do external rotators anyways. Uh, I don't see it changing a lot because at the end of the day, if you're spending a ton of time on your devices, even if you talk posture, like I think that's something you should talk is like good posture and head position and all that. Kelly Starter does a good, he has a book called Desk Ground. It's great. You can talk all that, but I've, I've yet to see, I've yet to see like drastic changes in posture in strength, uh, from strength and condition. A little bit, a little bit. I see it more in the hips than I see in the upper back, put it that way, over time. You know what I mean? Even with placing a huge emphasis on it. So, yeah, I don't know where I went with that, but basically the same things you see with all the athletes. They have stiff ankles, um, they have, uh, and they're have they lacking hip extension, and they have the upper back. I'm not so concerned with that. One thing I you notice, though, is like a lot of the offensive line athletes, they're built kind of, they have like knock-kneed. They're really internally rotated at the femur, almost like a, um, uh, like I always say it's like volleyball girls. I'm not trying to be sexist or anything. It's just, all the tall volleyball girls at my schools, they always were a little knock-kneed. Football players are built very much the same way. And here's the thing. It's terrible for squats. It's probably terrible for sprint times. It's great for freaking pass pro. It really is. Like Larry Warford, I mean, that's he moved that well. Alex Boone, the reason they moved that well, I mean, what contri- a contributing factor is how like knock kneed and internally oriented they were. Um, there's ways to address that in training. You kind of, since they're kind of all being sucked in, you, you maybe just do more pulling exercises, right? More deadlifts, trap bar deadlifts, or higher box squats. So you're not like exasperating them being so turned in, right? And I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to address them in uh, strength and conditioning because knock need squats look painful, right? Or, or or adapting your program to someone built like that. But, man, a knock knee guy taking pass sets or slew foot, it's clean, man. They don't look athletic until you see them take their pass sets. So I see that with the bigger high school kids, the bigger ones, right? Uh, another question was dead ball snap. And I this was actually in one of the meetings I did with the players. And I think in even one of my uh, our movement groups we have with uh, Ross Cooper and 
or Ortiz and uh, five is one guys and F- fat fat line. They uh, they I think we addressed this too. But even in my DM, I got a question about dead ball snap. I say uh, I don't have a preference. I have a personal preference. I snap it regularly, but today I see Cody Whitehair, hell of a center, Pro Bowl center, I believe. I think he was playing center when he made the Pro Bowl. Dead ball snaps. I say you do what works best for the athlete. I try not that. I would, you know, um, I used to make fun of it. First off, I thought it was terrible. I still don't like the way it looks. I've gotten past that, but you you got to do what's best for the athlete. You know what I mean? And, um, I remember my friend Ted Larson. He said he developed the yips. I can't remember what part of his career he was. He was always like a swing guy. He's a swing guy that got like a hundred starts. But uh, he developed the yips. That, that's a baseball term, I think, like when the catcher throws back to the pitcher, they miss. It never gets to him. It's like in that one of the major league movies. I think it was the worst one, Major League 3. He couldn't get it to the pitcher at the yips. So and uh, one of the ways they, tr- they used to traditionally deal with the yips was you change the mechanics. So when you have a guy that now he has the yips and you see it with centers, I saw it with Cody Whitehair, actually. He just couldn't get the snap down. It's all up here, right? At that point, you're like, dude, you made you snapped perfect for all these years. You got yelled at, and you developed the yips. The way they used to address that is you change the mechanics. So going to dead ball is a great way to do that. But the problem is with the reason they stopped just change, or you know, a lot of sports psychologists stopped doing um, changing the mechanics is because you'll develop the yips with the new mechanics eventually. If you know, especially if you're in the same environment. So they would want to address it like how um uh Dr. Looney, Dr. Dickhead was talking about it with, you know, you could do it with cognitive behavioral therapy where you're saying you have this automatic thought when you're about to snap and you could go through there's okay, that's this that automatic thought is resulting in a behavior an unwanted behavior, and that unwanted behavior is a bad snap. But anyways, the, uh, at the end of the day, I have no problem with the dead ball snap. I still think it looks funny, but whatever gets the job done, right? I'm not that rigid. I have been, but I'm not today. I'm not that rigid. I think you just do what works best for the athlete. So if Cody Whitehair, if you want to keep your Pro Bowl center on the field, and you go, hey, Let's try the dead ball snap, and now he's getting it back to the quarterback. And I don't think it's more accurate. I think it's slower. And the quarterback can move around, you know, has a better chance of getting it. Then, by all means, whatever you got to do to keep that pro bowler on the field. Sounds good to me. So that's that, dead ball snap. Okay, so this next one, hold on, I got to pull up the DM. So this one was about size, and I thought it was a good one to address. So I've... I've worked really hard over the years to go against the grain of my emotions and not get fixated on athlete's size. So I think he's talking about offensive line size. I currently have an O-line where my best player on the entire team is five foot eleven. He's 248 pounds. We have him at left tackle. Our new offense is very spread, and our head coach is concerned that he can't do it. He is by far our best player on the O-line at any position. But in this, uh, oh shoot. in this pass-heavy offense, I really want him at left tackle, and he's by far the best left tackle. 
my head coach is fighting me on it because he doesn't know what I should do. Or he doesn't, he doesn't know, doesn't believe he'll be able to do it. What are your thoughts? Okay. I talk about size all the time. This is, this is a good question. And I, I've had this discussion with people before. You, okay, we know the archetype when we're talking about size of offensive line athletes. Okay, the tackles are going to be taller. And then the guards are going to be a little shorter and thicker. And the center is going to be smaller and athletic. I say those are great. And we could find these patterns if we went through the combine. We, and, or if we went through Power 5 schools and we went to the combine and went to the NFL. Okay, we'd find a very good average. You know what I mean? Maybe tackles average 6'6", maybe guards average 6'4", and then uh, centers average 6'3". What trumps that is, is the traits that the position demands, right? So if you're thinking tackle, okay, what trumps the size thing is do they have the traits that are more um, conducive to playing tackle well? Or do they have traits that are more conducive to playing guard well or center, right? So just off the top of my head, okay, tackle. Let's look at the position. What's the demand of the position? you got to deal with a little more space. I won't say you have to deal with the freak. I think at least at the highest level, the freaks are everywhere, okay? And if high school, freaks are, that's relative, right? But so you have to deal with more space. You have to be more patient because of that space. You have to be more athletic. I mean, not every – Walter Jones and Joe Thomas are not the same athlete. Walter Jones is by far more athletic, right? Well, Walter Jones jump sets everyone. Joe Thomas was patient. So can it help? Yeah, but being super athletic, as long as you adapt with, to the skill, can help any position. So let's throw that one out. So how do you handle space? You have to deal with more space. So how do you handle space? Are you patient enough in the space? Are your, uh, is your perception of positioning and movement in relation to the defender up to par to play tackle? Okay, that's, in a nutshell, with some rambling, the, the traits that make you a good tackle. That trumps the archetype of the six foot six, 300-pound tackle. Sorry, it trumps it. Like, off top by Kelvin Beecham. I think he is 6'2 or 6'3. He played left tackle for eight years on three contracts and then moved to right tackle last year. Well, he had a lot of traits that were conducive to tackle play. So it didn't matter. They didn't move him into guard. He went to he stayed at tackle and it's he's been there his whole career. Um oh when? The left tackle in New England, when he's healthy, that guy looks like a center, right? When he's healthy, he's lights out. He has the best positioning. He's great patience. He's got great with his hands. He's nothing about him matches the archetype. Why does it work? Because having those traits trump the, 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 the physical archetype of tackle. And the people that drafted him are probably the best in the league at drafting players. We're smart enough to recognize that. Plain and simple. And they said Everyone was like, well, what's he going to play? He said, Bill Belichick said he's going to play tackle. Everyone's thinking he's going to move to guard. Everyone thinks he's going to move to center. No, he stayed at freaking tackle. And when he's healthy, he's super fun to watch. So what trumps, that would be my answer to the coach. Is, hey, this is what is de- demanded. This is what this position demands. I know he's 5'11". 
I know he's, what do you say, 248. Screw that. He's, he's the best man for the job. And if we're going to be in this pass-happy offense, and it's, it's, it's hard for me to even think of it. High school, like, in the NFL, it used to obviously be left tackle. You got to get the left tackle because that rush in. Well, now the right side has those rush ends, right? Von Miller changed that up. So they're both dealing with beasts. And then it was like uh, the guards, they, they weren't dealing with pass rushers sometimes, you know what I mean? But they were dealing with more plug guys, and the center for sure was dealing with plug guys. Now there's just all pass rushers across the board. Like Think, think of these monsters on the interior now. But anyways, um, if that's which in that high school, if, if in, in that league or at that, you know, if your quarterbacks drop back and that blind side, now, like we don't think about that that much in the NFL, the blind side anymore. Like just think of where the monsters line up. But in high school, if that's what you believe in your league, the teams you're facing, where they're going to put their best players, that quarterback's blind side, then that five foot eleven, uh, two hundred and four, whatever, the guy that's too small, that's your best player. He's the man for the job because he has the traits that are allowing him to be the man for the job. I've seen it like, uh, and it's it's really fun to watch now. If you look at the NFL, I don't know if this started it, but when um, the 49ers, that was like my favorite old line, uh, 2012, 13. They had Joe Staley and they had Mikey Potty. They had it really didn't matter at center. It was Goodwin. I think it was Taylor Kilgore. Um, yeah, or not Daniel Kilgore. Uh, and then right guard was Alex Boone, and then Anthony Davis at right tackle. Well, Alex Boone is six eight. Anthony Davis is six four. Were they supposed to switch them? Should Anthony Davis move to guard when he was lights out at tackle? When we watched him jump setting. Those freaks of the New York Giants, every play, and them not getting a pressure, where we say, hey, man, you know what? He's better suited for guard because he's 6'4", and Alex is better suited for tackle because he's 6'8". They didn't think about that because they put the guys in that were best for the job. And now we see this again with my favorite player in the NFL, Alex Kappa. One of my favorites. I like Pat Elfline, Brian uh, Allen, and Alex Kappa. Alex Kappa's number one, though. This is Jack for life. Um, he's six 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 seven. Worse, the right tackle in Tampa. What's he six four? He's should they switch him? I hope not, because one of them is about is a top five guard, and one of them is a top five right tackle. And guess what? Neither one of them match the archetype that that size archetype we're looking for. So screw it. That trump the the traits trump the size. Period. I'll stand by that. Every time, right? Um, you know, I wasn't going to address this one, but one of the questions was asked was um, when, uh, oh, which college was it? I, I'm going to mix up two interviews, but they said when I was getting cut a lot, what was the problem? They are like, you're just too small. So here's the thing. I would have, in the moment, I was like, you know, I got cut. Every time I get cut, I'm like, okay, I'm going to put on some weight. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to get bigger. Because that's what I was like, that's what I believe. Like, I'm too small. Okay? And many believe that. You know, I'd get cut and they'd be like, you know, if you were just 290, you know, we think it would really help you. But 
I would leave. I would eat massive amounts. I would drink shakes. I would drink steak shakes. I would take, like, uh, fatty cuts of steak. I'd put, chop it up, put it in a blender. I'd put white rice. I'd put heavy whipping cream. I'd put avocados. I'd put um, spinach in there, cheese. I'm talking 5,000 calorie shakes. I'd have, like, two of them in a day. You know what I mean? Spread out. Just nasty, right? Ah, I'm surprised my wife didn't leave me. It was but I would have like 10,000 calories and I six weeks straight and I gained like two pounds, right? So it, whatever reason then it, I was struggling. Now 290 all day, all day. I eat twice a day, martial arts all day. I lift like I'm getting ready for 17 weeks of football. I train like that still, 290 all day. It doesn't matter. Back then, 10,000 calories, 275. Well, I could say I'm too small, but the problem is I, I, I needed to, there was an opportunity there. I just needed to adapt my game so I could be able to play smaller. So I had to find ways out, uh, and that was the truth. What happened? I found ways to play bigger, not be bigger. I was, I couldn't get bigger back then. I don't know what the hell was going on. Excuse me. I didn't know what was going on, but I had to find a way to play bigger. So it wasn't the fact that I was too small, is that I played too small. Does that make sense? It's like, if I get bumped from the side, you know what I mean? Well, I'm playing too small. I'm not taking it. You know, if I get bumped from the side and I go flying, you're playing too small. I needed to find a way to sustain that impact or or at least see things coming before they before they happen, right, by reading defenses where I could put myself in a position to play bigger with, while not being bigger, if that makes sense. So that was kind of one of the things that came up. Just going off of the size thing is that I had to, at the end of the day, being – too small in the eyes of like GMs and scouts, I didn't. Nothing changed. I was always too small. Uh, I'd have my you know exit meeting for spring ball, and they'd be like, "Yeah, you know, they say you're too small." They say the same thing, but I found ways to play bigger. You know what I mean? Me, me being two eighty and o eleven or o twelve when I got cut from four teams, uh, Jets, Buffalo. Uh, Spokane Shock, Sacramento Mountain Lions. When I got cut from those, I was 280, right? I made the Bears at 280. Also, I played smaller when I got cut from those big, those four teams. I played bigger. I found a way to play bigger at 280. I used leverage. I used angles. I used knowing what the defense was doing so I could be there first. So that was the opportunity for me to kind of adapt to the game. Right, so I don't know. I just threw that in because talking size. So, anyways, five foot eleven, two forty eight, whatever you said he was, that's your guy. Stick with him. You let your head coach just in a respectful manner. I don't know how everyone handles these, but just say, hey, the the traits trump the size. Period, and that's how it goes. Um, actually, let me pull out this Bruce Lee book. If you're what. There was a good quote here. That's why. Oh, don't don't try to put me in there with LeBron. I've read this book several times. Just I'm just on page one. I'm in the beginning because I reread it. You know what I'm talking about? LeBron James has been on page one of Malcolm X since he was in Cleveland. I've read this book several times. Don't LeBron me. So, anyways, absence of stereotype technique as the substance means to be total uh, and free. All lines in movement are the function. So 
absence of stereotype technique as a substance means to be total and free. Um, I just thought that was a great quote. So just to kind of go on why when I was talking about that upper back and things we see with offensive line, one thing I had to do was, and, and, and you have to understand, so I, in college I had three O-line coaches. In the NFL, I played on several teams. I had five O-line coaches on seven teams, right? Uh, or five, five O-line coaches over seven years. Uh, and my Washburn, one of my O-line coaches, I was with him in Detroit and Chicago, he would say, you've just been whored out by all these systems. And so that, that was true. So I had all these, you know, all this noise, right, of what everything was supposed to do. I don't think Washburn ever, he was never rigid. So that would be my one exception. But most coaches like, has to be done this way. Has to be done this way, right? Maybe Cromer, he let me slide because I was so small. He said, just, he used to say, do some uh, seal shit. But, um, and then at my job, my old job. So I had, I had like all these stereotype techniques of what was supposed to look like, what was supposed to do. I had to drop that, right? Because when I start looking at an individual uh, and allowing guys to self-organize, it's it's helped me out. It's helped me out a ton. It's it's and in, 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 in return, it's helping the guys that I work with. You know what I mean? I just want to throw that in on like that rounded back. It's kind of how I came to that conclusion because, and and look, I, I'm not standing on anything like I could, that, that. That belief right there is for rent. I'm not, you know, I'm renting it. I'm not completely open or closed minded to anything, and that's kind of my goal. But having Absence of stereotype technique as a substance means is to be totally uh, means to be total and free. So when I'm working with a guy, I'm trying to forget, you know, all the archetypes of what's perfect. I keep using that damn word archetype. I'm in this Carl Jung thing, and it's not even what archetype means. But anyways, so I I have to kind of drop those these beliefs. And these techniques and, and and all these stereotypes and whether from from everybody to kind of be able to help this uh, offensive lineman you know uh, grow adapt adjust and uh, uh, skill at, well, skill acquisition but I'll say skill adaptation so I love that quote when I can when I'm able to get rid of all those ideals and stereotypes I could really I feel like I can really help an athlete out more. When you look at it, when if you have a rigid technique, right, you just know it works, you know, or you know the stance. It's got to be like this, but you're not listening to the athlete, or you're you're not, you know, you're not listening to his struggles. You're just saying, no, you're doing it wrong because it's supposed to look like this. And you take this with a grain of salt because I don't have a better word for it. It's it's absolutely arrogant. It's it's borderline narcissistic, right? In therapy, most of the, in counseling, most of the theories, the patient is the expert. And then they have a, you have a a counseling relationship, and the counselor's just kind of guiding him through his expertise because nobody knows his, the patient's dysfunction better than the patient. So when you have like a rigid stance on, let's just say it's two, two kicks and punch, two kicks, throw two hands, and it's not working, at that athlete comes to you and says hey it's not working uh i'm struggling with it i'm trying to do it i'm trying my best and they say hey and they they got information readily available all the time hey i think i want to just try to throw my outside hand 
let them swipe that and then catch them with my hands. I want to try independent hands. Well, you got to understand that to a degree, they're, I mean, they're the expert as well, right? They know it's not working for them. So even if you're coaching a system and you have, like, you know, at least, like, a guidelines of what it's supposed to look like, I think, I, I believe, in order to have, like, a healthy uh, a healthy relationship with all your athletes and really help athletes find success to the best of their abilities, you got to be able to kind of forget these stereotypes, at least for a minute, at least lower your guard and not not be so offended. And, take, like, take the arrogant, narcissistic part with a grain. So I just don't have a word for it because, you know, I, I did it. I did have experience with a coach like this, where it was like, "What do you think? What do you think about what you should be doing different?" You know, everything Washburn, Jeremiah Washburn, everything was like, "What do you think you could do different?" All right, try it. You know what I mean? He worked it out with each individual athlete, and I don't know if he why he did that, but it was almost as if they were the experts. So he he had his beliefs, but he would he would drop them just in time, like dr- drop these stereotype. Um, drop these stereotype techniques just long enough to let the athlete organize himself. And, you know, he didn't fight anyone or anything. Like, I remember, real quick, if anyone has watched Josh Sitton, he was so unconventional, awesome player, one of my favorite players, so unconventional. Their first meeting when when, uh, Washburn got the Chicago job, he was like, literally, Sitton was like, you going to mess with any of my technique? And Wash was like, probably not. And that was that. And they loved each other after that. He didn't mess with his technique. Everyone was always trying to tell Josh Sitton he's doing it wrong. Four Pro Bowlers, right? Four Pro Bowls later. Anyways, I'll read it one more time. It's uh, my bad. So, absence of stereotype technique as the substance means to be total and free. Right? So, just don't marry anything like that. But there you have it. Know your why, the cliche, my apologies. Uh, problems we see with all offensive line, high school offensive linemen, uh, my th- thoughts on the dead ball snap, my thoughts on size, and my thoughts on the stereotype techniques. So episode eight, like this podcast, uh, share this podcast, subscribe to this podcast. I really appreciate the support, everyone. Keep the questions rolling in. I'll address them. I got a couple fans coming up. Probably get the big Duke on here pretty soon. Maybe we'll do something in season, talk about what we what we liked. I don't know. See where we go. Bunch of rambling. We appreciate it. Hand on the line podcast. Subscribe. Thank you.